0: and pornography uh, in the whole region of Macedonia. and the uh, people there were struggling with this matter just as we struggle with it today. It is a thoroughly biblical subject, and uh, we need to take a look at it from the standpoint of, of the Bible. Let me read uh, the first two paragraphs, first three paragraphs of chapter four. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. You know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, And that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives us his Holy Spirit. Now, about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And, in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Sex is one of those mysteries in life that uh, have to be explained. There are, I think, two great mysteries. One is the mystery of our sexuality The other is the mystery of our spirituality. And neither can be disclosed, can be discovered by the scientific method or by use of uh, unaided reason. They have to be disclosed. They have to be explained to us. They have to be, uh, we we, we come to know them through disclosure, through revelation. And uh, what the Bible tells us, is that sex is something that's very, very good. Uh, I wish we could buy that one back from the world. Uh, Playboy magazine, Hugh Hefner did not invent sex. God did. The uh, book of Genesis is very clear about that matter. Genesis 2 tells us that uh, God uh, created a garden in which he placed... uh, a man and a woman, and he gave them the privilege of uninhibited sexual freedom. Uh, there are two statements that are made in Genesis 2 that are striking. One is that the two shall become one flesh, and Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 6 that that's, that expression, becoming one flesh, is an idiom for sexual intercourse. And uh, so they were that was a gift of God. Uh, Secondly, we're told that they were unashamed in their nakedness. They were unabashedly naked. The Bible makes a good case for fig leaves uh, outside of marriage. But uh, within marriage, uh, what God expects is uninhibited freedom in the area of our sexual relationship. Lovemaking is something that God invented. I always get a chuckle out of Carl Sagan. Uh he, he pontificates so easily about things which he knows absolutely nothing about. I always want to say, Dr. Sagan, were you there? I mean, he, he just has such assurance in his statements. Uh, he tells us that billions and billions of years ago, in a, a kind of manic- a molecular Garden of Eden, two molecules got this sudden urge and uh, they merged. And thus, he says in, in his inimitable way, thus sex was born. And I say, oh, come on, get out of here. There's got to be something more than that, than two molecules getting together. Uh, and Genesis tells us what, what the more is. God intended lovemaking between husband and wife to be very, very good. There's nothing wrong with sex. But there's something very wrong with the state of sex today. Uh, music, our music offers up a whole lot of solutions to emptiness, which don't satisfy. The media encourage us into all kinds of exotic sex, which uh, doesn't satis- satisfy. Tina Turner wriggles her way up to the microphone and belts out what does love have to do with it, and uh, you know, just totally disconnects sex from relationships and from love and There's something very, very bad about sex today. Those of you that have studied economics know there's a law called Gresham's Law, where bad money tends to push out good money. And in a kind of strange uh, parody on Gresham's Law, what's happened today is that bad sex has pushed out the good. Uh, Someone pointed out to me the other day that less than 6% of all sex acts today in the media, movies, television, and whatnot, uh, take place between husbands and wives. Uh, That means 94% of all sexual activity is outside of marriage, which is the context which God planned for lovemaking. I just want to say it's very good. There's nothing sinful or dirty or bad about sex. It is very, very good. Now, uh, what Paul tells us in this passage, uh, he doesn't stutter. He makes it very clear. He says it's God's will that you should be holy. The New American Standard Bible says God's will is your sanctification. God's will has to do more with moral issues than with direction in life. Uh, I believe that 99% of God's will is revealed already in the Bible. It has to do with behavior. The 1% that we don't, don't know about, God will take care of in other ways. We don't need to worry about that. It's up to God to get us to the right place at the right time. The the more important thing is to be the right kind of person. And so God's will centers mostly on behavior. And God says, Paul says, God's will is that you avoid sexual immorality. We don't have to be in the dark. We don't have to guess. We can know what's right and what's wrong. I saw a cartoon recently of a clergyman talking to his wife. And uh, the caption uh, said... uh, I still believe in sin, I just don't know any longer what qualifies. And this is very much the condition of the world today. They believe in sin, but they don't know what qualifies. Paul tells us what qualifies. Sexual immorality is sin. And uh, if we want to be holy, if we want to put our bodies to their intended purpose, if we want to do God's will, then we need to take what he says very, very seriously. This is not what the world is telling us. This is where we are very much counterculture. Paul says we should avoid sexual immorality. Now, the question is, what does he mean by sexual immorality? What qualifies? Uh, the term that Paul uses is the word from which we get our term fornication. It's the Greek word porneia, which originally meant to buy or sell, and then came to, the, uh, came to mean the idea of uh, cheap sex, the kind of sex that you buy, the kind of sex that's out of context in the New Testament, it refers to any sex acts outside of marriage. That is, sexual intercourse between two unmarried people, a man and a woman, sexual intercourse outside of marriage if one or the other is married, that's called adultery in the Bible, that's a very serious sin. It includes homosexuality. Now, I know some of you may struggle with that. Uh, there was a letter to the editor just recently in the uh, statesman, some of you may have seen it, about a statement the statesman made about two men that were caught in a public restroom engaging in a sex act, and uh, they were charged with a crime. And her the point of her letter was, this is not a crime, it should not be cre- tr- uh, treated as a crime, these people are simply different. In other words, homosexuality is sort of the moral counterpart of being left-handed. Some people are made a little different than others, but basically there's nothing wrong with being left-handed unless you think of it in the original way as something sinister. It's all right. It's perfectly all right, you see. But uh, that's what Paul means by sexual immorality. If you have any question about that, the Old Testament says that a man should not lie with a man as he lies with a woman. Paul makes it very clear in Romans 1 that uh, homosexuality is a distortion of nature. He says it's against nature. It is perversion, he says. It is not the worst sin that, uh, that a person can engage in, but it is the most undignifying thing that you can do to your body. That's the argument that Paul makes. Sexual immorality also uh, entails, um, included in it, is uh, the reading and viewing of pornography. Uh, When you men travel, or you women travel, you know, interestingly enough, I think one, there is, I'm always interested in trying to find gender differences, and I think there are very few, and I actually can't find any in the Bible, but I think one gender difference has to do with the way men and women view pornography differently. Most women are disgusted by it. Most men are not. They're attracted to it. And I think the reason women get involved is because their men do. But, uh, you know, you stand outside a pornographic uh, theater, don't go in, but if you stand out in front, <laughs> watch who comes out. Who comes out? You know, very rarely will a, will a, a woman by herself uh, walk out. It's, it's men that are attracted. And uh, when you men travel from place to place and you're in a strange city and no one knows you, there is this odd temptation to meander over to the magazine rack in the uh, airport and pick up a Hustler or Playboy magazine and uh, no one will see you. You can peruse the thing at uh, leisure and not have to look o- at your leisure and not have to look over your shoulder. Paul says that's sexual immorality. Stay away. Stand off, he says from that. The same would be true of sexual fantasies, imaginations. Our minds have wonderful image-making uh, 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 qualities. We can uh, concoct uh, wonderful images uh, that are wrong. Paul says that should not be indulged in. Uh, as Jesus put it, if as a man, if a man looks at a woman to lust after her, it's tantamount to the act, because our Lord knows that uh, what we think about is what we eventually do. Our thoughts will color our actions after a period of time. As someone has said, our immediate thought determines our, our determinate thought determines our immediate actions. Um, So sexual intercourse outside of marriage, whether it is what we would call fornication or adultery, homosexuality, pornography, sexual fantasizing. Paul says it's God's will That you abstain. The word abstain is the Greek word to stand off from. Some things are so toxic, you don't even want to sniff the bottle. Paul says, stay away. Stay away. Uh, Why, we say. Why does God delimit sex to marriage? Here is this powerful urge and drive that's given to us. Why must it be disciplined and curtailed and... Reserved only for uh, marriage, Paul tells us in this passage. In the first place, sexual immorality defiles our body. Look at verse uh, 4. It's God's will that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not. No God. Paul elaborates on that argument in 1 Corinthians 6. I'd like to have you turn there with me if you would. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 6, 12. He is here quoting the Corinthians. Everything is permissible for me. That phrase is in quotes, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me. I'll not be mastered by anything. In other words, everything is lawful for us, but some things used wrongly or used out of context can become our masters. So Paul qualifies the statement, everything is permissible. In verse 13, food is for the stomach and the stomach is food, but God will destroy both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. They were arguing that our sexual urges are very much like our, our urges uh, to eat. You get mac attacked and uh, you get a burger. Uh, you have a sexual attack and you satisfy it. And Paul says, no, that's what logicians would call a, a categorical error. That's comparing apples and oranges. It's true that the stomach is made for food, but the body is not made for sexual intercourse outside of marriage. The body is made for the Lord. Huh. That was a bombshell in Paul's day, because to the Greeks and Romans of that day, the body was trash. You know how they thought. The only thing that mattered were the ideas, and the body was just, it was it was garbage. And so you treated it in two ways. You either became a stoic, which meant that you disciplined it severely, or you became an Epicurean, which meant that anything, you could do anything with your body, it didn't matter. What mattered was the realm of the ideas. So it didn't make any difference whether you were a monk or a drunk. The body was unimportant. Paul says, no, no, no. God loves your body. God loves your body. Maybe lumpy, uh, a lot of adipose. You, you know, you may still have a chest, but the middle drawer is sticking out, you know. And <clears throat> it's all right. God loves your body. And your body was created for him, and God must have fill it and flooded and put it to his intended use. And Anything else, Paul goes on to say, prostitutes the body. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for His, for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he'll raise us also. Do you understand what he's saying? That God has an eternal purpose for your body. One of these days he's going to raise it up and you're going to have a new body in which you can uh, show forth his excellence. Uh, and he goes on to argue that He who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. Same thought. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. That brings to mind Paul's statement in 1 Thessalonians 4. How we ought to live. Paul says ought is... uh, you know, an English word formed from two English words. Owe it. You owe it to God. You're bought with a price. Therefore, honor God, or glorify God with your body. Show forth the character of God in your body. You see how he's arguing. It's the same argument that Paul is using in First Thessalonians four. God wants your body for Him and Him alone. And uh, sex outside of marriage prostitutes our bodies. We give our body to someone else other than God. And that, he says, is uniquely a sin against the body. You say, isn't gluttony? No. No, there's only one sin that is uniquely a sin against the body, and it's sexual immorality. Exactly the same argument that Paul employs in 1 Thessalonians 4. Your body is holy. So sex desanctifies, unhallows your body. Makes it something less than God intended it to be. Now, his second argument is that, Sexual immorality defrauds others. Verse 4. In this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. You so often hear that sexual immorality or simple sex acts, uh, as it would be uh, termed, between consenting adults doesn't hurt anyone. Therefore, why, why be so uptight about this issue? But Paul points out that sex acts outside of marriage always hurt someone. Someone is defiled. Someone is injured. I still remember a young man that I talked to uh, when I was working with students who told me that he had made love to, as I recall, 52 women in the four years he was on the university campus. And his argument was, it did not hurt me. I had made some statement about uh, what sex does to you, to your body, to your mind, your spirit. And he said, it did not hurt me. And my comment was, good for you, but how about the 52 women? Where are they today? What are they left with? And, uh, you know, there's something, again, Paul is going to tell us there's a mystery in sex. There is a uniting not only of bodies but of spirits. And there's a rending and tearing afterwards that, leaves, that minimizes you. makes you a little less than you were before. Now, we're talking about sexual immorality, not sex within marriage but sex outside of marriage. It diminishes you as a person. And Paul wants, he doesn't want that for us. He doesn't want us to hurt ourselves and hurt others. Adultery always destroys relationships. It breaks up marriages in two ways. Because it forms, you form a relationship with someone else and you destroy the relationship you have with your spouse. For the same reason, because you become one flesh. And uh, you cannot any longer be a one woman kind of man or a one man kind of, kind of woman. And homosexuality, as Paul points out in Romans 1, is it, it, it degrades the way you look at yourself and it, it uniquely defiles your, your manhood, your humanity. Uh, there's nothing quite as sad as an old queen who, uh, who's lost his attractiveness. He has nowhere to go. No one cares about him and he's on the streets preying on little boys and uh, he's lonely and empty. Uh, you know, I, I sort of look forward to getting old with Carolyn. I I you know, I'm, I think that's going to be great, just to get old and even uglier than I am, and uh, to to go home and know that I'm loved and cared for there. See, that, that's that's the pe- people in the gay community will never know that. They'll go home to their empty apartments. And there's nothing there, just a lot of unsatisfied longings for love and for acceptance. Uh, the, the gay community is anything but gay. Boy, if there ever was a misnomer, that's one. They will argue with you. They will fight you tooth and nail if that's not so. But I know. I've talked to them. I know what the gay community is like. There is a, a kind of sodden sadness, sadness that never goes away. And it's that you see that Paul wants to uh, wants to prevent. The same is true of reading pornography. Well, oh, it doesn't have any effect on me, but it does. Serious studies that have been done with uh, men that are uh, in prison because they were guilty of violent crimes against women indicates that in every case they read pornography. Because what pornog- pornography does is isolate the sex act from relationship. You can't have a relationship with the playboy, playgirl of the month. She's just dots on the page. That's all. And uh, it involves no commitment. There's no responsible activity that's required uh, it, it's a kind of safe sex because there's no commitment at all. And what it does is cause people to look at women, uh, cause men to look at women as objects, uh, to be used and abused, but not to be loved and cared for. And it just has a way of desensitizing your mind. And uh, uh, it, you know, it gets into your thoughts. And you begin to... to. Uh, to dwell on, on what you read in these books and what you see, and after a while you find uh, yourself acting in the ways that uh, you've seen things acted out on the page and, and on the screen. It, it's just the inevitable result of reading uh, pornography. The same is true of fantasy. Jesus, as Jesus put it in Matthew 5, we ought to be very, very severe with ourselves in this regard, pluck out our eyes, cut off our our hands, these are these are graphic symbols for dealing very harshly with ourselves so that we don't touch things that stir up the thoughts and we don't look at things that stir up the thoughts that turn our hearts away from our mates and turn our hearts away from God. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If we're impure in heart, then our vision of God is always obscure. And it also affects the way we uh, the way we relate to our to our spouses and and other women. The uh, third thing that Paul tells us is that we will destroy ourselves in the end. We defile our body. We defraud others, and we will destroy ourselves. And notice how Paul puts it: the Lord will punish men for all such sins. We've as we have already told you and warned you. Uh, Tina Austin, two or three years ago, handed me a Beetle Bailey cartoon, and I've never been able to get it out of my mind. Uh, Beetle was talking to the chaplain, and he says, Chaplain, uh, first it was venereal disease, and then it was herpes, and now it's AIDS. What does it all mean? And the chaplain says, Beetle, it means that God is not fooling around, and neither should you. Now, there is a very powerful message in that. I do think we need to be very careful about saying that AIDS is the direct judgment on the human race because of, of our sexual immorality. Uh, the reason I think that's true is because of a of an, a, a debate that Jesus had once with uh, a man who came to him and raised the question of, of the slaughter of certain Jewish Men, he says, have you have you heard about this uh, terrible tragedy? A group of Jewish men went in to offer their sacrifices, and Pilate and his men fell upon them and slew them. The implication was they must be great sinners for this to happen. And and Jesus' response is interesting. He says, do uh, you think you're, they're greater sinners than you are? Is that why you raised that question? And what about those on whom the tower of Siloam fell, killed a number of, of uh, people that were in the tower, apparently it's a tragedy we know nothing about. He says, do you think those people were greater sinners than you? He says, no, as a matter of fact, unless you all repent, you'll all fall under the judgment of God. So, you know, there aren't some people that are worse sinners than we are, and they contract AIDS and uh, and, and we don't. As a matter of fact, uh, many innocent people in that sense are now contracting AIDS a kind of byproduct of the immorality that's going on in other parts of the community. But we need to be careful about attributing that particular judgment as the judgment of God because, and it may well be, but the New Testament indicates that the judgment of God more often than not is just simply letting people have their way. He takes their hands off of them and lets them go, and they begin to suffer the due consequences, as Paul puts it, of their error in their own bodies. Uh, if, you want, uh, if you want some corroboration of that, turn to, to Romans, the first chapter. Paul there is talking about certain people who were no longer thankful. Though they know God, they have chosen not to believe in him. And uh, he says in verse 24, Therefore God gave them over. In the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever blessed. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones, that is, relations, sexual relations against nature, unnatural ones, in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. That is what Paul calls the wrath of God. He simply takes his hands off of us and he lets us have our way, and our lives begin to deteriorate, our bodies begin to disintegrate, our souls begin to come apart. Uh, we lose that sense of, of our uh, humanity, and we are degraded, Paul says. And we find that sex no longer is our servant, it is our master. Sophocles said of his own life, Sophocles lived some years before Paul said of his own life, my sexual passions, he said, are a mad, uh, an an angry and insane master. And some of you know what I'm talking about. You no longer engage in sex acts because you want to. It is because you have to. You cannot pass a porn shop. You cannot stay out of brothels. You uh, are involved in adulterous affairs that you cannot get out of. And what Paul wants us to realize is that that is the wrath of God. He's simply letting us go to reap the consequences of our actions. But we need to understand that all of that is redemptive. It is designed to bring us back to himself. He is Emmanuel. He is with us. Whether he is with us in our walk with him or whether he is with us in his judgment of us, he is still with us. He will not leave you alone. One of the flip sides of the truth that God will not uh, leave or forsake us is the fact that he'll never leave us alone. He will hassle us. He will harass us with his love until we're willing to listen to him, to take him seriously and repent of our sin and come back. And when we repent, there is immediate forgiveness and restoration. He is waiting. Just as he waited for that church to turn in repentance, he was knocking outside the door, waiting for sounds of life within that church so that someone would open the door and let him in. That's what he's doing to us. He loves us. He will pursue us to the very end. His judgment is redemptive. The point of view that the The first five books of Moses takes is that sin is against God. The point of view that Proverbs takes is that sin is against yourself. You destroy your own life. So when Paul describes the results in terms of the degradation of our own bodies and the fact that others are degraded and that we begin to destroy ourselves, he's simply saying something that's said all the way through scripture. This is a very serious matter. And why we are so reluctant to talk about it uh, amazes me, because it is something that all of us have to face. All of us struggle in this area, and we don't get a great deal of help. So what can we do? How can we handle our sexual urges? How can we handle these drives that uh, threaten to, uh, to undo us? Well, uh, some would say simply say no. Uh, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work in the drug campaign, and it doesn't work in handling our, our sexual drive. Those of you that know people that have problems with substance abuse, alcohol, or drugs, know that they cannot simply say no. They are in the hands of an insane master. So what, what can we do? How can we handle our sex drive? Well, I want to go back to a statement I made in the very beginning. There are two great mysteries in life. Two areas of life that we cannot understand apart from Revelation. One is our sexuality. Someone has said that sex is being 36, 24, 36. Sexuality is knowing the meaning of being 36, 24, 36. Now, clinicians can tell us all about being 36, 24, 36. They understand the organism. They understand the human body, the physical functions of sex. But sexuality is something far deeper, far more intense. And uh, here's where we need help from God. We need a revelation from outside. Uh, Some of you may remember back in the 60s, uh, Mr. Natural, Robert Crumb's uh, dirty old man sort of combination uh, guru and, and dirty old man whose uh, uh, column appeared in many of the underground newspapers of that time. There's one segment I've never forgotten. Mr. Natural is standing talking to a young man. A young lady walks by in a very short miniskirt. The young man says to Mr. Natural, Mr. Natural, is sex the answer? Mr. Natural says, no, my boy. Sex is the question. It was then and it still is. We need revelation to understand it. Now there's another mystery. It's the mystery of our spirituality. There's something about us that cannot be contained or cribbed or even explained. Some some deep urge that we have within us to be more than what we are. Something that keeps us from being satisfied with material things. That's why we can go from possession to possession to possession and never find the possession that, that fills us up. That's what makes us understand that the important, the most important things in life are not things. There has to be something else to fill us up. We were made for God and we only find satisfaction in Him. That's the truth about us as, uh, as human beings. Now, our spirituality and our sexuality are inextricably linked, I believe. The Bible links them. Let me, let, let me explain. Most of you know in, in Ephesians 5 and Paul's reference to the relationship between husband and wife as symbolic of the relationship between Christ and his church. In fact, what Paul says is that the relationship that a man has with his bride is a small representation of the relationship that Christ has with his church. There's almost a direct equation there. And then he ends his argument by making a remarkable statement. He says, uh, he, he goes back in, uh, to Genesis 2, and he quotes Moses' statement, They, too, shall become one flesh. They'll leave mother and father. They will cleave to one another. They'll stick together. And they, too, will become one flesh. Now, I've already said That Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 makes it very clear that that phrase, they shall become one flesh, is an idiom for lovemaking. There's no question about that. Because in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that if you engage in a sex act with a prostitute, you have become, quote, one flesh with her. So when God turned Adam and Eve loose in the garden, he said, I want you to become one flesh. That's okay. That's good. And Paul says that refers to lovemaking. Within marriage. Now, notice how Paul argues. Ephesians 5, he says, They too, husband and wife, shall leave mother and father, and they cleave to one another, they form another unit, and they shall become one flesh. What's his commentary on that phrase? This is a mystery. But I'm talking about Christ in the church. Whoa, what does he mean? Well, I think what he's saying is that these deep urges that we have to merge. Are really urges to merge with God. These deep longings, these unsatisfied desires. You know, these these monumental uh, uh, passions that we have within us are really passions for God. And uh, lovemaking is just some small representation of that greater urge that we have. Now, that being the case, it means that we will never be satisfied, even within marriage. That's why I had a young man tell me just this last week, I thought when I got married, everything would be all right. I wouldn't have struggled in this area anymore. It isn't true, he said, and it isn't true. Because the urge is bigger than anything that can be satisfied in a marriage relationship. That's an urge for God. That's a hunger for him. That's your heart crying out in response to his call. He's saying, seek my face, seek my face. And as David puts it, when you say to me, seek your face, my heart says, I'll seek your face. That's his deep calling to our deep, as the psalmist put it. These these subterranean urges that we have for something more than we can have in this life is really an urge to merge with God. And that's why these figures, Christ in us and we in Christ are really the, that's the answer to all, all that we need to, to satisfy us. So if you really want to tackle your sex urge and do something about it, the thing to do is to work on your relationship with God. Start reading the Word in order to look through the Word into the face of God. Worship Him. Love Him. Be devoted to Him. All those hungers that you have are just God saying, come a little closer, come a little closer. I want to love you. I want to satisfy you. I want to fulfill you. Now, this doesn't mean that you will never again have another uh, sexual urge. That's not true. But it certainly makes it easier when there's deep longings are met by God. There's still the struggle. You know, it'd be nice if you could cross the goal line, spike the ball, and be all over with. Doesn't seem to make any difference how old you get. The urges are still there. So, you know, it's, it, it, the struggle is there. But you notice how Paul puts it. I was struck this time by the the repeated statement, more and more. He says in verse 1, we ask you and urge you and the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. And then in verse 10, he says, we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. In other words, th- th- this is, there's a matter of progress. It's not like flipping a switch and all of a sudden our, we're able to master every. Illicit sexual urge that that we have, but there can be progress as we put our roots down into into God. I was talking to the men a couple of weeks ago about the story of David and Goliath, and pointed out that Goliath represents those giants in our life, the the habits that, are, that threaten to overwhelm us, and this insatiable urge that we have. Uh, to walk into a porn shop and it's that sort of thing that looms large in our minds and and dominates us and controls us. And uh, when David went out to face the giant, he did so in faith, first putting his roots down into God and then going out to face the giant. But he took with him five stones. And I asked the men, why do you suppose he took five stones? And some wise guy in the group said, because Goliath had four brothers. And uh, there's some truth in that he did have four brothers. But I, I, I think that he took five stones because there was a possibility he might miss. And he, he just, he was figuring on missing a couple of times. He didn't, as you know. He took the giant down with the first sling, but uh, sometimes we miss. Sometimes you set out to conquer the giant and he, he slays you. But uh, you can learn to love more and more. God gives you the grace to get up and dust yourself off and, and, and walk on again in, 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 in faith, knowing that he's, he's at work in you, both to will and to do of his, of his good pleasure. Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, it's too late for me. I'm, I've already trashed my life. I have so much guilt and remorse over the past. I, I have a sexually transmitted disease. There's nothing I can do to remake my life. I want to close by reading something that I wrote a few years ago. I've been for some years now working on a book on the Song of Songs, which I'll probably never finish. But uh, I concluded the book, uh, uh, the last chapter, this way. Perhaps you're thinking it's too late for me. I've dabbled too long at this dreary business of sex. I've gone too far. I've forgotten how to blush. Remember that dear woman they caught in bed with the wrong man standing there Before Jesus, disheveled and and ashamed, and there you are as well, gone so wrong. Everything that seems irrevocable and ugly comes to mind. But you hear him say, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. As we look at our Lord, all of our guilt melts and dissolves away. For we remember his cross that tells us of his unconditional acceptance, his infinite patience. His tender love that keeps no score of wrongs. There he, we hear him say, it's all right. Everything's going to be all right. And there we can begin again. Not defiled and ruined, but as Paul would say, purified virgins in Christ. Do you realize that's what Paul calls you? And when he wrote to the Corinthian church, those people have been so defiled by sexual sin. Uh, there were there were people out of the gay community. There were adulterers, there were male and female uh, uh, homosexuals in that group, and yet he calls them because they had been sanctified, because they had been called out of that life, he calls them purified, chaste is the word that he uses, chaste virgins. That's the way God looks at you. Every day is a new beginning. You can forget the past. You can get up tomorrow morning and And realize that his mercies are new every morning. His faithfulness is great. And you can take that first step knowing that it's as though the past never existed. He died on the cross for all of those sins. Sin is sin. It's all paid for. Every day in Christ is a new beginning. If we repent of our sin and we turn and accept his forgiveness, there's a new beginning. He's the God of another chance. Let's pray. Lord, we stand here as so many of your men and women in the past stood before you, and as they saw your face and they saw your beauty, your purity, they saw the ugliness of their own lives, the seemingly irrevocable results of sin that has blighted and, and darkened their lives. And uh, we, we sense that as well. There, there's so much in the past to be repented of, so much that we'd like to redo, but we can't. It's simply there as a fact of our lives that that uh, that haunts us. The, the memories are, are overwhelming at times. But we thank you that there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And we can, as that woman who was caught in adultery, we can, can go with the assurance that You will give us the grace increasingly to control the urges and drives of our lives that are dishonoring to you. To deal with the sin that we've harbored and defended in the past. But now we want exposed and brought into the light. We know there can be progress as we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's our prayer. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for the new beginning every day. Thank you for your your love that continues to be expressed to us regardless of our failure. You see the intent of our heart. You want to purify us. Purify our hearts, Lord, so we can see you clearly. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.